Man, I, when Danielle told me about that song as we progressed into this series, you know, a few weeks ago I said the heart of worry is God won't. And the reality is God will. And if we can get past God won't to God will and God can because God cares, we can change the way we think. She said, Christian, this song that's been on the radio a lot really speaks to that thought that you don't have to worry God will. And I said, then do it. So I hope every time you hear that song for the rest of your life, you'll remember not to worry because Jesus has told us all month long now in February journey not to worry. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6 and take your bulletin and pull your sermon notes out and take that pen that we gave you and click it on so you can take notes today. And today we end a series that we began three weeks ago called Winning Over Worry and Stress. And our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They'll have Bibles for you today. If you want one, um, raise your hand if you'd like to open one and follow along. If, if you don't have a Bible or you don't know where yours is, keep this one. Put your name in it. You don't need to give it back. Or turn on your, your phone or your tablet to Matthew chapter 6 because I want you to see the words Jesus said today, not just on the screen and on your notes, but actually in your hand. So if you need a Bible, wave at the ushers and they'll get you one. And we find ourselves in message number three. Week one, we talked about worry and what Jesus had to say about worry. Last week, we talked about how to overcome anxiety, which are not just thoughts of worry, but a life, an ongoing life of continual worry. And today, we learn how to manage our stress like Jesus managed his stress. And out of all the three that I have preached, this one has become my favorite because of how practical Jesus is and the things that Jesus points out that bring us stress that maybe sometimes we're not aware of. Matthew 6, 25, we'll start there and go through verse 34, says this. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry. You need to underline those three words. Jesus will say this phrase three times in the next nine verses. Do not worry. Do not worry. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith, so do not worry. There it is. You need to underline those words again. There it is again. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. There it is again. Underline it for the third time. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know, in the three weeks that we've been studying what Jesus had to say about worry, it's, it's amazing that Jesus' very simplistic teaching to us on how to deal with worry and stress begins with prioritizing our worry and stress. Jesus says, listen, if you're going to live a life where you don't worry and where you're not filled with anxiety, if you're going to live a life where you overcome anxiety and you learn to control stress, the way to deal with worry and stress is as simple as prioritizing your worry and stress. So the things that are most important, you really are focusing on. And by the time you're done with those, there's not really time for anything else either. And you'll be pleased with the way you're living your life. For instance, when Jesus talked about prioritizing worry in Matthew 6, 33, he said, if you're really going to 
worry and think about things. He said, worry about God first. And really worrying, putting God first in your thought process called worship, not worry. And what we said is that worry and worship use the exact same mental capacity. Worry is focusing on something unknown and thinking about it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Worship is thinking on God and what we know about him and thinking about it over and over and over and over and over. Worry puts us in a very bad place. Worship puts us in a very good place. Jesus says, when you think about the things that you really should be focusing on, start with God. He, he said, for instance, put God first. For instance, when I talk to you about prioritizing worry, don't move past today. He says, don't worry beyond today. I mean, even if, even if you're going to try to figure out and arrange life and make good decisions, don't worry past today because tomorrow is going to take care of itself. Now, I was able last night to to use this bit of spiritual application on someone else. And isn't it interesting how much easier it is to apply spiritual truth to someone else than yourself? We had a, a great man in our church that passed away last night at the age of 53 um, after finding out two months ago that he had cancer and it very aggressively took his life. And I was with him yesterday afternoon praying for him, talking to his family, and I got a call at about 8.15. His name is Ricky Hicks. Probably a lot of you don't know him. He's an African-American guy who kind of walked with kind of a limp. Uh, his boys were in my youth group for years. They were star football players in inner city, Kansas City, went on to play at uh, Northwest Missouri State, national champion type kids. Um, and Ricky, Ricky got cancer and he died last night. And at 819, my phone rang and it was the boys. And they said, Christian, dad's just died. Can you come? I said, of course, I'll be right there. So I rushed over, and, and we were sitting in hospice with them, and, and the immediate family was there with Ricky saying their goodbyes, and, and a few kind of extended family and close friends were there. And, and we were just talking. I was just doing my best to minister to them. Uh, so we were talking about, you know, tell me about your last conversation with your dad, and tell me how that went. And, you know, I was talking to Tina, his wife. Tell me how you and Ricky met and how, you know, um, how everything went. And, and we were talking, and it was good. And then it just kind of turned, and she said, Pastor Christian, um, what am I going to do tomorrow? Pastor Christian, what am I going to do tomorrow? She said, tomorrow's going to be the first day since 1979 that I wake up, and Ricky's not here. Pastor Christian, what am I going to do tomorrow? I didn't have a verse. I didn't have really a comforting saying to give her an answer. All I thought about was this message and what Jesus said, and not even sure that I believed it, I just said it. I said, Tina, I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. All, all I know is you have to get through today. And the only person in the universe that loved you and cared, you, cared for you more than Ricky was Jesus. And when you wake up tomorrow, he'll still be here. I don't know what you're going to do tomorrow, but I promise you it's going to be okay. What was strange is the comfort that that, the comfort that, that thought brought into the room. It was, it was like it hit all their heart, and it was like everyone was like, yeah, and in my spirit, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, not in jest, but I'm thinking as, as, they, as that kind of trickled through the spirit of people in the room, and it really caused them to comfort. I, I thought to myself in my flesh, they bought it. You know, it's like, I mean, I didn't know the answer. I didn't have a good answer. I just said what Jesus said, and like it worked. And here's the hypocritical thing. 
I didn't even believe what I was saying to them. Because I never just worry about today knowing that Jesus has tomorrow taken care of. That's not me. So it was hypocritical for me to say Jesus has it taken care of. That's what Jesus says, but that's not what my spirit and my DNA and my anxiety says. I'm the guy who this week was trying to figure out next month, uh, Danielle and I will go for spring break with my mom and dad. My mom and dad live just south of Chicago. My dad is the greatest man I know. He's the greatest influence on my life. And the thing that I hate most about living in Kansas City, maybe the only thing I hate about living in Kansas City is that my dad does not live here because I want him to have great influence on my kids. So we decided six or seven years ago, I told Danielle, we have to take a trip every year with my mom and dad because I have to get my dad around my son on the golf course, in the swimming pool, at meals. I just, I need dad to influence Christian. And we went a few places and then decided that our thing as a family was going to be that we would meet in Arizona and over spring training and we'd watch a little baseball and, and play a little golf and the girls would go to the pool and we would have this thing that was our, our family's opportunity for dad to, to be an everyday part of my kids' lives. But I, I'm, my mind is so hyperactive. Like, Danielle, when we go, when we go away... Danielle wants to go someplace warm with a book, and she just wants to lay and do nothing. And no matter how tired I am, I can do that for about an hour. Um, and, then, and then, like, I'm bored. It's like, you know, we got to do, like, can we go someplace? Can we go play putt-putt? Do you want to drive to the Grand Canyon? Should we go to Sedona? Like, I can't. And she'll like, can't we just read? And I say, no. And we always fight every vacation because I, about an hour in, I'm bored, and I need something to do. And I'm so... I'm so unconvinced that Jesus takes care of the future that this year I began to plan in my journal. I began to write out the perfect day for myself on vacation. I thought, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to structure my time away with my mom and dad so I won't get bored. So I'm thinking already a month in advance about vacation. That's how unsure I am that I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I'm so unsure about tomorrow that we spent an hour two weeks ago in our staff retreat with our children's ministry team basically making them come up with the number of rooms, children's rooms in our nursery and on our children's building that we were going to build in, in three to four years when we built our building. We had to know we would not leave the meeting until I knew how many nursery rooms and children's rooms we we're going to have three to four years from now. In, a, in two weeks, on February 27th, I'll meet with a banker and begin to talk to him about financial needs that we don't have until three or four years from now because I live thinking so far in the future that to say all I need to worry about is today, I would say, you know, Jesus, I, I don't know that I buy that. I don't know, I don't know that that's me. I'm, I'm the guy who for years had the Southwest Airlines flight schedule memorized because I wanted to try to figure out when I got the call that my mom and dad were on their deathbed and didn't have much time left, I needed to figure out, depending on what time of day I get it, is it faster to fly there or drive there? Because I wanted to know so when that call came, I'd be ready to go. And when I say that, people say, well, what was wrong with your parents? Nothing. Like, they're perfectly healthy. There's nothing wrong with it. Say, what's wrong with you? Well, I'm just a freak who worries about everything. That's the reality of it. A few years ago, I was playing golf with my dad on the golf course, and we're putting on the green, and I'm holding the flag stick, and I said, Dad... Um, if, you know, like if you were to go, do you have enough life insurance to make sure that mom's taken care of? And he said, why? Are you planning on taking me out? And I was like, no, I'm just, I worry about those kind of things. And he's like, that's just, don't worry about that. And here I'm telling someone, Jesus takes care of tomorrow. And as I'm saying it, I'm thinking, 
I don't know about this. But the spiritual peace it brought people, the reality of this spiritual truth that Jesus doesn't want us to live our lives filled with stress and anxiety, it could not be clear in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says three times, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And what I'm trying to do through this series is I'm not trying to quit being a planner, but there's a difference between being a planner and a worrier, and I'm a worrier who often wonders if God won't rather than who trusts that God will. And this series has been great ministry to me. And what I have realized through this series is Jesus said, listen, you're going to have stressful things in your life. The key to not living with worry and anxiety, not being overcome by worry and anxiety and stress is just prioritizing your stress the way that I did it. So what did Jesus do? If we look closely, Jesus said we need to prioritize our stress. Say, Christian, where do you get that thought? Matthew 6, 33. Jesus says, but seek first. I want you to circle those two words or underline them in your Bibles or, or on your sermon notes if they're there. This is a question of priority. Jesus is saying, do this first. And as we look through scripture, we see that Jesus is as concerned about the priorities that we place things of value in as he is of the things of value. Here's, here's the order I want you to do them in. And you'll realize if you do them in the order I tell you, you'll live with less worry, less anxiety, less stress. And at the end of your life, you're going to be very fulfilled. You won't live with a life of regret from all the stress. We, we drew a picture of this a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, verses 38 through 42, Jesus meets up with two sisters, one who worships well, one who worries well. And we see Jesus say, listen to the one who worries. Here's how you have to live your life. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the, feet, at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed and indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So we said that stress reduces, according to Scripture, as our focus goes from many things, Martha, Martha, you're worried about too many things, to few things. Jesus said only few things are really as important as you're making this, to really one thing, the most important thing, where Jesus says, if you'll start with me, everything else will begin to fall in line. So first things first, Jesus says, I want you to begin with me, and it's not that this won't be stressful, but I want you to start with me because this will make everything else less stressful. So I call it stress from above. Stress from above would be defined as, as the stressful things that God puts on us, the stressful requirements that God puts on us, the stressful mandates that God says, if you're a Christian, that means you have to do this. They're actually spiritual responsibilities. Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 was writing his deathbed diary, and, and he was basically teaching all the things that he had learned through life. I tried to do this, tried to do that, tried to do this, tried to do that. And he got to the end of his life, he got to the end of his journal, and he said, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I gave that verse to my kids on the way here, and I said, what do you think of that, that verse, Christian? And he started laughing, and he said, you said duty. And then my daughter started laughing, and I thought, dear God, I've got Beavis and Butthead in my car, right? you know, riding to church. So, it, you know, when, when I say a duty is a mandated responsibility. That's what a duty is, a mandated 
responsibility. And Solomon says, at the end of your life, you learn the most important things are the mandated responsibilities God gives you. And if you'll do those first, all the other stuff, you'll live with a whole lot less stress and worry and anxiety. And so what are these God-given responsibilities and requirements that mandate that we focus on them intently? These would, what I, would, were, would be what I would call priority stress. These are the most important things that we need to focus on first. God says priority stress number one is your relationship and your responsibilities with God. Matthew 6, I'm first. If you will put me first... I promise you everything else will be less stressful. Now, most people, if you were to ask most people who love God, who go to church, who are engaged spiritually, why they don't put God first or spend more time with God, the very honest answer would be, I just don't have time because of all the other stuff in my life. And that's why Jesus is saying, put me first. He's saying, if, if, if you put me where you have time, you're not going to have any time. I have, to be for, I have to be first in your schedule and in your calendar. If you put me first, everything else will be less stressful. The Bible then tells us that if we're married, our relationship and our responsibilities with our spouse have to be second. In Ephesians 5, through 28, Paul says, husbands are, may, have a mandated responsibility to love their wives the correct way. Wives have a mandated responsibilities to love their husbands in such a way. And if you really want to know, like if you just want to, like the Cliff Notes version on how to live the Christian life, go read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. It's just three chapters of practical, here's how Christians should live their lives. It, number three, if you're a parent, God says the priority stress number three for you is your relationship and your responsibilities to your children. In Ephesians 5, God says you need to live for, Paul says you need to live for God this way. And then he says, you need to live in your marriage this way. And then he says, you need to treat your kid, you need to bring your kids up with spiritual training and admonition. Your mandated responsibility for, from God is to make sure your kids know who God is. You can't make your kids love God, but you have a responsibility to put them in a position to at least know who he is so they can, so they can choose to put their faith in him if they'd like to. Then, then the Apostle Paul says, as we continue working our way through Ephesians, that every Christian has a mandated responsibility and relationship to the church body, which means I'm responsible to you and you're responsible to me and we are responsible to the world. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, the Apostle Paul says, every Christian has this responsibility before God. And it's to serve each other in the context of church. In Hebrews 10, 25, the author of Hebrews says, you, you can't not go to church. Because if you quit going to church, you're not going to be equipped or equip others the way that you're supposed to. So there's a mandated responsibility there before God. And then there's this mandated responsibility that a lot of people don't like to focus on today. But the Apostle Paul very clearly says that every Christian has the responsibility to work hard to provide for their family. Now, Paul is so serious about this that he told a young guy he was mentoring who was named Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8 that Timothy, people who refuse, who can work and who refuse to take care of their families, they're worse than an unbeliever. They're worse than someone who doesn't, who, who doesn't believe that there is a God who takes care of them. Anyone who believes that there is a God who takes care of them has to be willing to take care of people that they oversee if they're able to. Paul felt so strongly about this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, Paul said to the Christians who all they wanted to do was worship Jesus and read their Bibles all day long and they'd all quit their church or quit their jobs. 
Paul said, tell the people who will not work to provide their families that if they're not going to work, they can't even come eat with you. Because Christians should not be known as lazy people who want a free ride. Christians should be people who put God first, put their spouse second, love their kids and train their kids well. They serve each other through the institution of the church and, and they work hard to make sure that their needs and the needs of others can be met. That's what the Bible says we have to do. And you say, that sounds stressful. It is stressful. But that's stress from above. That's priority stress. That's the type of stress where God says, I want you to know this is very important to me. Now, when you look at these things, a lot of us today would say, Christian, my relationship with God on a scale of 1 to 10 is maybe a 3. My relationship with my spouse on a scale of 1 to 10 is maybe a 6. My relationship and responsibilities to my kids are maybe a 4, maybe a 7. When I look at how I serve other Christians in the church, yeah, maybe that's not real good. You know, I look at my work, and a lot of you probably would say your work, you, you'd give it a 10. But see, when work is the main priority of your life, everything else suffers. Jesus says, do things my way, prioritize stress my way, and you'll have less stress in everything else that you do in life. So there's stress from above, there's good stress. You know, we need to learn, and, and we need to learn how to manage, and if we prioritize it, everything's going to flow well. But then there's this stress from within that Jesus wants to teach us about in Matthew chapter 7. He begins to teach us about dangerous stress that should not be a part of our life. He goes right from telling us not to worry, not to think into the future so far that we can never enjoy today, right into Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5 where he says, now don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged and with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eyes and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. You know, as I read this, I see a lot of things, but one of the things I see Jesus telling us not to do is I believe this stress of comparison between us and other people and this stress of judgment between us and other people creates poor spiritual focus, and it creates personal spiritual stress. And I can't tell you the amount of people that I have met who are driven to stress by just trying to keep up with somebody else or someone else's perception of them or what someone else is doing. Jesus says this stress from within of always paying attention to other people instead of just doing what I've called you to do and living how I've called you to live, this stress is going to kill you and it's going to get you off track. I think about the stress of comparison when we look at how successful we are to how successful other people in our family are, maybe our graduating class or maybe our neighborhood or maybe our kids' sports teams. I think about how we compare our lifestyle to the lifestyles of others and how that causes stress and anxiety in our lives. I think about how many of us have stress over comparing our body image with the body image of somebody else that we perceive has a different or better life or that people perceive them better than they perceive us. I think about the stress of comparison of people who have all these friendships and these great friends and this world of Facebook, they're always with, with someone else and the stress it creates of isolation and feeling alone and the stress of comparison of they have all these friends and I feel so alone. I think of the stress of finances 
that you see so many people being able to do so many more other things and they seem to be moving up and they seem to be going out and they always seem to have new clothes and, you know, it just doesn't seem like we're there in the stress of comparing finances. I think of the stress of blessings. It's sad how many Christians look at other Christians who are being blessed and we get envious of that and we wonder why we aren't being blessed and maybe we get angry that we're not being blessed and we begin to carry stress over that. I think about the comparison of position where someone else works or where someone else's kid plays on the sports team or how someone else got invited to the next level of competitive sports and our kids stayed down and how that comparison just kills us this stress from within. I think about people in jobs who are watching people get promotions and they haven't had the promotion yet or people who are volunteering at church and they've watched people rise in leadership and they haven't risen in leadership yet. And it's this comparison of what about them, what about them, what about them that this stress from within is killing them. In John chapter 21, Jesus dealt with this kind of stress with his disciples, having a conversation with the apostle Peter who was like the captain of the disciple team, Jesus said in John 21, very truly, I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you're old, you're gonna stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't wanna go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's gonna betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, well, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, the apostle John included a lot of thought in that narrative. But the narrative, if we would have just been listening to it, it would have sounded like this. Peter, follow me. And Peter's answer was, well, what about him? Like, this, like does he have to follow you like I have to follow you? And Jesus literally said, if you don't stop paying attention to other people and my plan for their life and my pace for their life and my purpose for their life. And if you won't get your eyes off of what everyone else is doing spiritually, how everyone else is doing financially, how every other kid's progressing through the school system and the sports system, if you don't stop comparing your calling in your life to everyone else's, you will never successfully follow me. Now we know Jesus loved John, but Jesus literally said, who cares what happens to John? You, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about you. And I think sometimes when Jesus calls us out to do other things or when Jesus calls us to stay and do the same thing, we constantly wonder about others instead of just following the path that Jesus has for us. The truth is that stress from within must be wiped out, not simply worked through. Because those of us who try to manage stress from within will always be managing the comparison and judgment game. What do they think of me? How are they judging me? I wonder what so-and-so is going to think about this. I wonder how they're talking behind my back. If we live with stress from within, we'll never be able to truly love God and love ourselves the way God wants us to. So we have to get rid of it. You know, Galatians chapter 6 verse 4 is a verse that some of you need to cut out and you need to put it in your car, or you need to hang it on your bathroom mirror, or you need to put it on your bedstand, or you need to tape it to your desk at work. Galatians 6, 4 very simply says, pay careful attention to your own work, for then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we're each responsible for our own conduct. Isn't it interesting that we can do a job perfectly, and if somebody else does it a little better, we feel like we failed, when in reality, we've done as good as we possibly can do. 
Some of us live in the very best house that we can have, and because it's not the house next door, it's not good enough. Some of us drive the very best car that we can drive, and because it's not the car someone else drives, it's not good, good enough. Some of us, our kids play double-A baseball, and because they don't play triple-A baseball, we wonder if it's not good of us. Some play triple-A baseball, and because they don't play major baseball, we wonder if it's good enough, and some play major, but because they're not the star on the team. Do you get where I'm going here? Do your best and stop comparing yourself to everyone else. That stress from within is not going to work in your life. And then Jesus addresses stress from the outside. And he says, stress from above, you have to follow that, but you have to prioritize it. Stress from within, it's got to go. You've got to be honest enough to admit it. You've got to be honest enough to confess it. You've got to get it out of your life. And then stress from the outside, you need to learn how to manage better. Because in my opinion, perhaps the greatest stress in our lives comes from the expectations that others place on us. And if we were to get real honest and I were to ask you about the things you're stressed about this upcoming week or maybe next month in March, if I were to ask you about the meetings that cause you stress and the activities that cause you stress, most of us, if we got honest, would say we're really only doing them because somebody else expects us to. And we worry about what people think about us or we'll worry that people will feel like we've let them down if we don't do them. And we live our life trying to meet the expectations of everyone else. Jesus, because he was perfect and so smart, said, I'm not going to do that. In John chapter 2, Jesus had just begun his ministry. And Jesus made a statement in John chapter 2 that said, I'm not going to be owned by anyone else's expectations. And then later in Matthew, he came and told us why. But in John chapter 2, after Jesus' really first public ministry, It says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind was really like. Jesus says, I'm here to fulfill the purposes that God gave me to fulfill. And I'm not going to let all your expectations of who you think I should be and what you think I should do get in the way of what God has called me to do. You say, Jesus, why, why would you think that way? Matthew 11 explains it a little better for those trying to put expectations on the life of Jesus. Matthew 11:18, Jesus says, John, he's speaking of John the Baptist. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is going to be proved right by her deeds. Jesus basically said this, you looked at John the Baptist and you expected him to be more like me. And you look at me and you expect me to be more like John the Baptist, and the reality is I can never live up to your expectations, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to live my life. Because I can't please everyone at the exact same time. And the reality is I probably should only be trying to please God who's already told me that if I stay close to him, my spouse, my kids, my church, and my job, that that that's enough for me and I don't have to do anything for anyone else. Isn't it interesting when you break it down simply like Jesus did, how clearly we see how outside stress can impact us. I don't want to say that Jesus didn't care about people's expectations but he didn't allow stress from the outside to rule his life and his emotions. And the sad reality is Jesus, I believe, poses a question in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, and that question is this. Why do so many of us give our best mentally and emotionally to those who matter the least? Why do we give our very best 
to those who at the end of the day really matter the very least. You say, Christian, what do you, what do you mean by that? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, as we continue through this learning in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, don't give dogs what is sacred, and don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they might trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus says, don't give your very best to people who are just going to run over you and tear you to pieces. You know, Jesus, he's asking, he's asking this question, why, why would we allow people to take our very best and just destroy it? And why do we give our very best to our employers and our friends or supposed friends, to people we have relationships with? Why do we give our very best to people who matter the least and then come home and have no time for our spouse and our kids and Jesus? Why do we spend so much time trying to impress people who at the end of the day we don't even like? That's the question Jesus is asking. You know, he says, when you do this, you get run over and torn to pieces. We defined worry early as an old English term that means strangling or choking the life from. And here's the reality. Many of you spend your most and best emotional efforts every week with people who at the end of the day are just going to run over you, emotionally tear you to pieces, and choke the life from your future. And this picture became real clear last Saturday. We have a real elite gymnast in our church. She's an 11-year-old. She had a gymnastics meet down at Crown Center, and I took my two kids and went to watch her. And the whole time I'm there, and her entire family is there, and she's got a large section of grandparents and aunts um, and cousins and other friends from school. I mean, we, we kind of had a whole block of bleachers. And, I, you know, I kept trying to get her attention and wave to her and try to make her smile and try to make her laugh. And she was so focused and so intense, and it's probably one of the things that makes her great. And she was jumping on the beam and flipping on the bars and scaring me to death. You know, I'd much rather watch my son play football than watch my daughter do gymnastics because it scared me to death what she was doing. But I realized after two hours of cheering and enjoying, and all of us who cared the most about this young lady, just up there enjoying the process, I realized that her entire focus was not the people who cared most about her, but the judges who sat at the table who would give her a score on her performance. And I thought, these three judges sitting at this table who will not remember her name, who don't know where she goes to school, who don't know what she likes and doesn't like, who really don't care about her as a person, have all of her attention or focus, and her entire spirit is going to rise and fall on what they say about her performance. And I watched it, and I thought, my gosh, how many of us do that every day? I mean, we are flipping and jumping and twisting and turning, and we are doing everything in our power to get someone who in reality could care less about us to give us a nine or a 10. And then we go home and don't even, we don't have any time left or any energy left for the people who care the most. And Jesus says this stress from the outside cannot rule your life. Another great stress from the outside is this constant concern of feeling responsible for others. And we, we carry the weight of who others are and what others are doing and we have so much concern and we lose so much sleep and we're so financially invested in people who refuse to be responsible for themselves and at the end of the day we take the priority stress from above 
and we're negligent of it because we're so worried about whether it, listen, whether it be a student in our classroom, whether it be someone at work, whether it be someone we know is hurting, whether it be someone we talk to at a classroom. I'm not saying all these things aren't important. I'm not saying all these things aren't noble. I'm saying when you give your responsibility for others more priority in your life than the responsibilities God has given you, you're going to live with a stress that can't be balanced spiritually. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Apostle Paul says, one day we're going to stand before Christ to be judged, and we're going to receive whatever we deserve for what we did. You know, none of us are going to stand before God one day and be asked about someone else who failed spiritually. And so, man, we carry, so many of us carry, we carry the burdens of others, of others so deeply in our life that we don't have room for our own burdens. We don't have room for our own families. And we don't have, we don't have time for ourselves because we're constantly living under the expectations and the burdens and trying to feel responsible for everyone else. And that's a difficult thing. You know, really, when you, when you look at ministry, ministry is, is a balancing act of these two things, managing the expectations of people and trying to be as responsible as you can for people's spiritual lives. It's, it's, trying, it's trying to balance those two things. And that's difficult. And one of the things we've done at our church this year is, is our elders voted to hire an organization in Kansas City called Pastor Serve that basically exist to minister to and counsel church staffs. For this reason, most, most pastors and church staffs don't make it very long because they cannot hold up under the expectations of others and trying to carry everyone's burdens all the time. When, when my personal coach, who's going to be preaching at our church four times this year, he's going to be in our staff meetings, he's going to be in our, our elder meetings as we figure out how much money we need to raise versus how much money we need to borrow to build a building. And as we pick architects and do these things, he's going to coach me through all that. I have to meet with him twice a month just to see how things are going to keep me healthy. But he gave me a sheet of paper. and said, Christian, let me tell you what I hope doesn't happen to you. And he gave me this study of statistics provided by the Fuller Institute focused on the family and George Barna. He said, here's what happens when you live your life to try to live up to others' expectations and carry everyone's responsibility. He said, nearly 20,000 ministers leave the ministry every year because they just, they cannot, they cannot live up to expectations and carry everyone's responsibilities. 90%, nine out of 10 pastors said ministry was completely different than what they thought it would be. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their roles. 50% of pastors will get a divorce. 40% of pastors will consider leaving their role in the last month. Why? because we try to figure out how to balance everyone's expectations and the responsibilities that we have. And we, and we try to just do the best thing for hundreds and hundreds of people. And sometimes you can't do that for everyone. And I'll never forget a counselor who told me one time as he was trying to help me learn the balance of ministry and leadership. He said, Christian, you can't live your life for the people who are going to be at your funeral one day. You want to live your life for the people who are going to be at your bedside when you take your last breaths. He said, do you see the difference? You can't live your life for the people who are going to come to your funeral one day. You want to live your life for the people who are going to be at your bedside when you take your last breaths. You know, I sat with a family who had that reality happen to them yesterday. And I went home when I was challenged with this, and I, and I made a list. I was challenged to write a list of who I wanted in the room with me when I died to show me what my priority focus should be in ministry. 
And here's the list that I put down when I was challenged with this question. I said, in the room when I die, first and foremost, I want the Spirit of God. Because like you, I'm human and I have this fear that I'll be scared to death of eternity and what's next. Because I don't know about you, but I've never been to heaven and I've not met anyone who's been there yet. So although I read about it, I pray that there's this peace on my soul when it happens. So I said, I know that I want the Spirit of God in that room with me, giving me peace. I know that I'll want my family there. I know that I'll probably have a few friends from church that I'll want there. And I'll probably want a few of the pastors that I serve with who are just there ministering to me and my family. And this is a list that I made separate from this message, but what's so crazy is as I look back through the message and I saw Jesus say, here's the important things in life. I saw the important things in life matched up with the important things in death, and I thought once again, Jesus is a genius, right? Like, it's like, when you look at who you want in your room when you pass, Jesus said you ought to spend all your time focusing on them. The Spirit of God, your family, your great friends that you do spiritual life with, people that you serve in your job with, those are the ones who matter at the end of the day. And if you don't have time for anything else or anybody else, you don't have time for anything or anybody else. But if you will live your life, if you will live your life with those priorities, you will die your death with no, very little stress, very little worry, very little anxiety, and the people you cared about that you poured the most into right there at your side. So I thought, okay, Lord, how do I, how do, I do this? And I believe these are the stress tips that God has given me to give to you today so we can try to figure out together how to live our life the way Jesus says. Stress tip number one, begin by filling your life and schedule with your stress from above first. And when I say schedule, I mean calendar, which means I want you to go home and do this for this week before you schedule anything, for next month before you schedule anything, I want you to list the five things you're accountable to God for and fill them out. When during your day are you going to spend time with Jesus? When during the week or the month are you going to spend quality time with your spouse? When during the week or the month are you going to spend quality time with your kids? What part will you play in God's global church ministering to each other and how can you work well at your job to provide for your family? I want you to fill in a week like that and a month like that and a year like that. Now, some of you will say, Christian, I'll have no room left on my calendar. At least you'll be doing the important things first. Tip number two, if you have extra space, fill in the extra space with hobbies and people that take your mind off of the worries and cares of life. Not those who load more worry and care onto your life. So if you have extra time, extra nights, extra days, extra weekends, extra morning, extra hours, fill those with people that take your mind off the worries and stress of life, people and hobbies. Tip number three, begin in your own heart to deal honestly with the stress from within and wipe it out. List, list these things, these people, these relationships, these, these friendships that cause you to always have extreme stress in your heart. List them talk about them, get a plan to remove them. And then tip number four, you need to learn to walk away from stress from the outside. Remember, stress from above, we put first. Stress from within, we remove. Stress from the outside, we manage as we have time. And how, how do we manage stress from the outside? Number one, eliminate the dogs and pigs. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically, but you know what I'm talking about. Eliminate the people in your life that are just trampling everything you've got to give emotionally, spiritually, 
physically, mentally to your family, even if it just begins with a mental transition. I met with a couple in our church a couple weeks ago whose husband is in a, in a, in a no-in job, works 65 to 70 hours a week, and, I mean, they treat him like a dog. And his marriage is suffering. He never sees his kids. He never has time to read his Bible. Like, all the things that Jesus says are most important are dying. And I told him, I said, you don't have to quit your job, but you have to leave. You have to, leave. You have to make a plan to leave because Jesus is saying, when you put these two up against each other, there is no future in this. If you, were, if you were to play this out five, if you were to keep your jobs for five more years, what would happen? He said, I'd be divorced and I'd be broke and probably I'd have some kind of substance abuse problem. I said, then you can't do that, right? No, I can't do it. I said, then you have, you have to have a plan to walk away. I would never tell anyone to quit their job without another job first. But if you have dogs and pigs in your life who, who are just killing the very best of what you have to have, you have to make a plan to transition. You can't just think, well, I'll figure it out one day. Don't wait till you're fired. Get a plan. Get your resume together. Get you a coach. Start a prayer list and say, this is it. This six-month window is it because i got to give my best to the best people in my life. Step number two, you need to cycle back or eliminate contact with people who load stress and worry onto your back. We all have people in our life that when we're with them, Man, our burdens feel lighter, and we all have people that when the text message or the phone call comes, the burdens feel heavier. You need to literally go into your cell phone and find the worry loaders in your life, and underneath their name on your cell phone, and you should probably get a lock on your cell phone before you do this in case they ever pick it up, but like when, they're, when the phone rings with their name, it should say, John Doe, worry loader. So you just know, now I'm gonna, if I take this call, it's going to stress me out. And because I'm on the way to dinner with my family, who I haven't seen yet this week, I'm not going to take this call. Now, the first part of that sounds unspiritual. Oh, they're going to worry me, so I don't, I'm not going to take the call. The second reason, I haven't seen my family yet, and I have to choose this person or my family, sounds very spiritual. A lot of it is just wordplay from Satan saying, how could you feel that way about somebody? Well, here's what I feel. I feel this way about my family. I can't do both tonight. can't do both this week. So I got to cycle back or totally eliminate people who just dump on me worry and anxiety when I'm with them. And I got to fill my life with people I laugh with, talk with, joke with. Got to have more of those people in my life. And then thirdly, we all have to learn how to say no to things that interfere with stress from above. It's been very difficult for me to say no to meetings and weddings and counseling appointments when my son has a baseball game. But I'll tell you what helps me do that is I can't look into the eyes of my son and say, I'm not coming to your game because I got this couple over here that I have to help. Because one day when I'm at my bedside, couple A, a and B is not going to be there like little Christian is. And the person I'm going to look at one day to say, take care of your mom, is not a couple who needs counseling Thursday night at church. It's my son who I coach in baseball. See, it's easy to learn how to say no if you've learned how to say yes to all the right things first. And if we will manage stress the way Jesus managed stress, our calendar will get filled with the yeses for the good things. We won't have time for any of the things that are going to bring extra stress. And when we do, we know how to manage those wisely. Look, the bottom line 
the bottom line is the top line. We started this series and this message with it, and we ended it. Jesus doesn't want us to live lives filled with stress and anxiety. Matthew 4, 17, Jesus says, change the way you live. Matthew 4, 19, he said, follow me. Become more like me. And then in Matthew 6, he said, if you want to be more like me, you've got to worry less. You've got to be filled with anxiety less. You're not gonna, you can't let stress rule your life. If we as people who go to JCI, as parents, as spouses, as employees and employers, as Christians, as single folks, if we can get this down, I promise you, that what John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I've come that if you do what I said, you'll have the best life ever. I promise you, if we can get this down, I say we, because I'm trying to, we can live the life Jesus truly wanted us to live. And that's going to be attractive enough for people to say, how do you make the decisions you make? It's going to lead to a conversation about Jesus, which is the way the light is supposed to shine, according to Matthew 5. It should attract people to who Jesus is in us. That's my goal for me. That's my goal for you. Let's pray.